Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silva, and today we will be talking about the fight card in Vegas main evented by Teofimo Lopez's uh, comeback fight against Pedro Campa, Xander Sias's uh, return to the ring, one of the best prospects in the in boxing, one of the best Puerto Rican fighters in a very very long time, and uh, we will once again take questions. I will answer questions from the listeners. And then I will go into my I will go into my 27th fighter of the 27th greatest fighter of the last 45 years historical bio on Nayoa Inoue the continuation of my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years reading articles that I've written on Fight Game Media uh, dot com. Look out for two new articles coming out soon on my number 11th and number 10th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Now we go to Saturday evening, Las Vegas, the return of Tiafima Lopez. Sold out a small venue, a little bit less than 4,000 people. Sold, sold out venue. And um, before we talk about Lopez's fight, let me talk about the greatest Puerto Rican prospect since a young Miguel Cotto, Xander Sias. And Xander once again showed how offensively gifted he is. He does everything off a beautiful left jab. He, when he hurts his opponent, he goes to the body. Tremendous body puncher. For a 19-year-old fighter, he is so heavily skilled offensively Defensively, he's above average, and I believe he will get better as he progresses. I have made this prediction before, and I'm going to make it again. He, in my opinion, will be the first great Puerto Rican middleweight champion. Now, people are going to say, well, well, Miguel Cotto and Felix Trinidad were middleweight champions. They both had cup of coffees as middleweight champions. I'm talking about a long reign where you defend the title eight, nine, ten times. That's where I predict Xander Sias will uh, elevate to, elevate towards. Um, He's only 19. He's still growing. He's at 154 now. By the time he gets a world title shot in 18 to 24 months, he will be a full-grown middleweight as he is still growing. As far as his fight, Saturday night against Eli- Elias Espadas. First round. This is beautiful. This is rare that you see in boxing today. A young fighter. He fainted with his left jab, froze Espadas, and then threw a beautiful left hook off the feint, dropped Espadas less than a minute into the fight. For the next Four rounds, he beat the he beat the body of Espadas. Beat it so bad that he hit him low a few times and the referee had to warn him. Then in the fifth round, he landed a beautiful left hook, right cross combination, dropped Espadas. Espadas got up, referee stopped the fight. Was it premature? This wasn't like the Bartholomew fight that we saw recently uh, against 
Gary Antoine Russell where they stopped the fight and Bartholomew was in the fight. If Spotters had lost every second of every minute of this fight, it would have just gotten worse. Referee did a good job in stopping that fight, despite the fact that Espadas could have continued. He had no shot in the world at beating one of the best, if not the best, prospect in boxing today in Xander Zayas. Tremendous fighter. God-given natural ability. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. This young man is going to be the first great Puerto Rican middleweight champion. All right. Now, on to the main event. Teofimo Lopez versus Pedro Campa. My undefeated streak in 2022 continues. I get another uh, prediction correct. I predicted the fifth round, I believe. Uh, Lopez knocked out Campa in the seventh round. People actually thought Campa had a shot. Campa is a fucking glorified cab driver who has lost to a cab driver and drawn with a cab driver. All right, He's never beaten anybody significant. All right? He was tailor-made to get his ass kicked by Lopez. This was a make lo- a make good make Lopez look good fight. Lopez's initial outing at 140 pounds. A Lopez jabbed a lot more than he did against Cambosas, went to the body, threw combinations, and he dominated this fight, won every minute of every round. And finally, in the seventh round, he landed a beautiful right cross left jab combination. Lady, um, those that listen that that listen to me, if I see you post on Twitter that a right cross that he threw was a right hook, I'm blocking you. I'm never speaking to you again. That was a fucking right cross. Those clowns out there that called it a right hook, you don't know shit about boxing. You don't know the difference between a hook and a jab. Look. I'm tired of announcers doing this, but fight fans, listen to me. That was a right cross he landed, followed by a left jab. Not a right hook. Get the shit correct, all right? Let's stop with the bullshit. Let's stop with naming hooks, crosses, and crosses hooks, all right? Lopez dropped Compa with a beautiful right cross, left jab combination. Batted him for the rest of the round until the referee finally stopped the fight. Lopez... Debut successful at 140 as it was going to be. Only way he was going to lose to Compa is if they let, allowed Compa to come in with a shotgun. Compa was a fucking walking zombie. All right. And the way that the ESPN announcers were trying to make it look like this was this tough, tough task that L- Lopez had coming in. And then Mark Kriegel and all the other announcers asking Lopez the same questions over and over again. Your mental health. Are you over your defeat to Cambosis? Your relationship with your father. Shut the fuck up. Right? Let's stop with the with the dumb fucking questions. All right. Lopez came in the ring, did what he was supposed to do. Now I want to see Lopez either against Josh Taylor or Ryan Garcia. Let's make this happen. He he claims he's gonna fight Heisman Trophy night December twelfth. I don't want any more fucking zombies like a compa. Put him in with some real fighters at 140, right? Let's stop the bullshit. Let's get him in with some fighters. Let's get him in with some elite fighters. Let's call this a day. All right. Now, on to the question and answer session of the program. All right. And for those who want uh, to hear their questions 
answered on this podcast. Hashtag Ask Rob Silva on Twitter. Now, long-time listener of mine on all platforms of all the shows I do and a loyal listener to the Fight Game podcast, LL School K asks, asks a question. The question is, is there any great, are there any great trainers that you could think of that never competed in boxing as a boxer? Yes. Last week I did my top five greatest trainers of all time. One of them, Angelo Dundee. Angelo Dundee. Angie. Angie, tell the people. I want to tell the people that Angelo Dundee never once in his lifetime stepped into the ring as a boxer. While he was in the armed forces, Angelo Dundee in the 1940s during World War II serving for his country, the United States of America, began working as a, as a bucket boy in the armed forces boxing tournaments. And then when he came back to the United States, he began training boxers. The first world champion he trained was Carmen Basilio. Then, of course, Muhammad Ali. Willie Pastrano. And then, of course, later on, Sugar Ray Leonard. And, of course, one of the main trainers of George Foreman doing George Foreman's comeback in the 1990s. He was in George Foreman's corner when George Foreman shocked the world by knocking out Michael Mora. November 5th, 1994. I digress. So there you go, LL. It was uh, Angelo Dundee, who's the greatest trainer who never competed in the ring. All right. Now, Got other questions. Uh, let me see now. Okay. Um, Sly Guy asks, Rob, how do you feel about the unwritten rules in baseball? And now from time to time, I take questions about other sports, and I'm going to answer this question. Uh, Sly Guy, the unwritten rules of baseball have all but disappeared. Used to be on a double play ball that the second or shortstop uh, would only have to be near the bag, didn't have to touch the bag in order to start the double play. That no longer exists. You got to touch the bag when you get the ball on a double play ball before you throw the first base. That used to be an unwritten rule. Another unwritten rule used to be where – if you were down by 15 runs, you wouldn't try and steal a base. Uh, that that went out the window with the great Ricky Henderson when he went after the stolen base record in the early 80s and throughout his entire career. He, if he could steal the base, he stole the base. Also, if a team was up 15 nothing, they wouldn't try to steal bases or, or a, a continue to pour it on that unwritten rule left a long time ago there is one unwritten rule that i fucking hate there is one unwritten rule left sly guy that i fucking hate i wish they would do away with it everybody follows it even my favorite managers dusty Rhodes and buck showalter follow it the unwritten rule of a pitcher can't throw more than 100 pitches in a, in a game now 
I attended Friday night's Met Phillies game at City Field. Max Scherzer was pitching a brilliant game. After seven innings, he had thrown exactly 100 pitches. They took him out. Saturday night, Jake DeGrom, Jacob DeGrom, six innings, dominant, no runs, 10 strikeouts. He only threw 76 pitches. They took him out. This 100-pitch unwritten rule has got to fucking go, man. If the guy's arm is strong, keep him in. Keep him in. The day my beloved son was born, July 17th, 1992, while I was in the hospital waiting for him to be born, the New York Mets were playing the San Francisco Giants on TV, on the TV, in, in the TV room I was watching. David Cohn, and they had a, there were a couple of rain delays. David Cohn won the game, I believe, one nothing. Shutout, nine inning shutout, and he and he had to undergo, he had to overcome two rain delays, I believe, and several bases, loaded jams, the whole nine, hundred and sixty six pitches he threw that night, and winning a one nothing shutout. Two weeks later, he was traded to the Toronto Blue Jays during the trading deadline. Um, and David Cohn went on to win over 200 games. And this was in 1992. David Cohn, from that point on, went on to win championships with both the Toronto Blue Jays and the New York Yankees. Didn't affect his career. Still had a great career, borderline Hall of Famer. Don't give me that bullshit about 100 pitches. I don't want to hear it. I'm tired of it. They baby these starting pitches. When you've got aces, Stallions like Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer, they got to go. They got to go more than 100 pitches. Come on. I know DeGrom just came off of injury, but, man, first three games, he's pitched, he's been lights out. He's healthy. Keep him in the fucking game. Scherzer is one of the greatest pitchers of the 21st century, top, top three to five. Keep him in the game. All right. Next question. I got two Malcolms. Two Malcolms. First, Malcolm Excellent um, gave me a question that was posted by another uh, guy on Twitter. It's about Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao was a legendary eight-division world champion for the Philippines. The question is, how would he do against Salvador Sanchez at 126? Azuma Nelson and Alexis Aguayo at 130. Diego Corrales, Jose Luis Castillo, and Pernell Whitaker at 135. Would he win all six? The answer is absolutely not. Salvador Sanchez was the greatest featherweight I ever saw. At 126, great counterpuncher. He would have picked apart Manny Pacquiao. Remember, Eric Morales boxed Manny Pacquiao's ears off at 126. One Manuel Marquez got off the canvas after being dropped three times in the first round and went on to dominate the rest of that fight by counterpunching Manny Pacquiao to death. Salvador Sanchez was the ultimate counterpuncher, great boxer, great chin. He would have dominated Manny and, in my opinion, would have knocked out Manny late in the fight, 13th, 14th round of a 15-round fight. 130 pounds, Azuma Nelson and Alexis Arguello. Uh, uh, Azuma Nelson would have outboxed um, Manny Pacquiao winning a 15-round or, no, a 12-round decision because uh, 
Nelson only fought one fifteen round fight. That was against Salvador Sanchez. The guys that beat Nelson were the guys that could box. The guys that could slug like a Manny. Manny Pacquiao never outboxed anybody. He was an aggressive fighter who gave you a lot of angles. It wouldn't have worked against Zuma Nelson, the professor. Alexis Arguello was never beaten by a fighter like Manny Pacquiao. Arguello had problems with guys like Aaron Pryor and Villamar Fernandez because they boxed. While Pryor slugged the first couple of fights, he had his best success when he was boxing from the outside using his superior speed against Arguello. Yes, Manny Pacquiao's quicker than Arguello, but Manny doesn't fight from the outside. He goes inside, and Arguello would have caught Manny and put him to sleep like Juan Manuel Marquez did at 130. Diego Corrales, Jose Luis Castillo, and Pernell Whitaker. At 135, I think Manny would have beaten both Diego Corrales and Jose Luis Castillo. Diego Corrales had was a, was a fighter who could have fought tall, but he never did. He wanted to slug, and nobody outslugged Manny Pacquiao. He would have slugged with Pacquiao, and Pacquiao would have knocked Corrales the fuck out. Same with Jose Luis Castillo. He would have slugged with Manny, and Manny would have knocked Castillo the fuck out. Pernell Whitaker is the type of fighter that is Manny Pacquiao's Achilles heel. Pernell Whitaker would have done the same thing to Manny at 135 that Floyd did to Manny at 147. He would have boxed Manny's ears off, made Manny miss all night. Counterpunch, Southpaw versus Southpaw. Pernell Whitaker with a decisive, comfortable, 12-round unanimous decision. I believe I have one more question left in this answer and question, question and answer session. No, I've got two questions left. First, from, from Sean Olmstead. Sean Olmstead. Oh, well, Sean, I can't answer you the question because for some reason the guy that you uh, 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 quote tweeted deleted his uh deleted the the the, the post. The post was a well. I'm going to try to answer from from memory. You gave me a you showed me a tweet from a guy who uh, tweeted the ring rec ratings from 1990 of all these great middleweights, or it was 1991. That was the deepest the middleweight division was ever in. What did, what did Sean say in the question? Oh, no, you just, you just, you just tweeted me the, 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 the rankings. But uh, from 1990 to 1992, the middleweight division was the deepest in the history of the middleweight division. You had legendary future champions and Hall of Famers in that division, such as Michael Nunn, who belongs in the Hall of Fame but is not in the Hall of Fame, James Toney, who's in the Hall of Fame, Mike McCollum, who's in the Hall of Fame, Roy Jones Jr., one of the greatest fighters that ever lived, all right? Uh, Bernard Hopkins, one of the greatest fighters that ever lived. Uh, Gerald McClellan, who would have been one of the greatest fighters that ever lived had he not gotten seriously hurt in his 1995 fight against Nigel Benn. Julian Jackson, one of the greatest punches in boxing history, who's also in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you had a who's who of it, Steve Collins, who I believe belongs in the Hall of Fame. Nigel Benn and Chris Eubank, deepest 
the middleweight division ever was. You had a lot of all you had a lot of all time greats early in their career. And towards the end of the career, like a Mike McCollum and a Michael Nunn in that top ten. And don't forget uh, also Sumbu Columbe and Harold Graham. Sumbu Columbe, who was the first man to defeat Mike McCollum, lost to McCollum in a rematch. And um Harold Graham, one of the best middleweights that never became a middleweight champion of the world. Now, final question by my brother Malcolm. Uh another Malcolm. Not Malcolm, excellent. Um, this is Malcolm's, uh, Big Malcolm's play cousin, Big Malcolm X play cousin. And he asked the question, Thomas Hearns versus Mike Tyson almost happened in 1990. Who would have won? Around April of 1990, before Hearns had a fight at a super middleweight, Hearns and Emmanuel Stewart had proposed to Mike Tyson that after this fight and after Tyson's next fight, because Tyson had just lost the heavyweight championship world to Buster Douglas, could they fight at a catchweight where Hearns would fight at 182 and Mike Tyson would fight at 200? First of all, Malcolm, that fight would, didn't happen and would have never happened because the last time Mike Tyson weighed, weighed 200 pounds for a fight, he was 14 years old. Mike wasn't about to go down to 200, and Mike wasn't about to... uh, uh fight Thomas Hearns when he was desperately trying to get a shot against either Buster Douglas or Evander Holyfield. Remember, Tyson was the number two contender in the world. Holyfield and Buster Douglas had signed to fight each other. The winner was going to have to fight Mike Tyson, and a year later, Tyson did sign to fight Evander Holyfield, but injured his shoulder during the training. Then um, that fight was postponed, and canceled once Mike Tyson in March of 1992 got convicted of rape. But for shits and giggles, let's say they would have fought. First of all, Mike would have, went, would have never went down to 200. So I'm not even going to answer that question because Mike would have never went down to 200. So um, if they would have, if they, nah, I don't even want to go there because Mike wouldn't have went down to 200. Forget it. And at that point in time, Thomas even though Tommy was only 32 at the time, he had been in several wars the last five years, beginning with Marvin Hagler in 85. One Domingo Rodin in 87. Iran Barkley, who knocked him out in the third round, and James Kitchen almost knocked him out in 1988, and Sugar Ray Leonard in 89, who hurt him twice, even though Hearns did drop Leonard down twice and got robbed. Leonard almost knocked him out twice in that fight in the sixth round and the twelfth and final round. If he got hurt by Hagler, Kitchen, Roldan, Leonard, and knocked out both by Hagler and Iran Barkley, there's no way in the world he would have beaten Mike Tyson. And Mike's not going down to 200, so that's why that fight was never going to happen. If anything, Mike might have... Agreed to 210. He wasn't agreeing to 200 because the last time he was 200 pounds when he was 14 years old. All right. Those are the answers to this week's question and answer session. Now on to my weekly historical bio. And this week it is on the great 
number 27 fighter of the last 45 years, Nioa, Monster, and Noe. And I wrote, anyone who knows me knows the love I have for Thomas Hearns. Talk about a perfect segue. I don't even do this on purpose. You great listeners out there with the questions always feed me into the next segment. Perfect segue. Anyone who knows me knows the love I have for Thomas Hearns. For years, I've looked for another fighter comparable to the Motor City Cobra. There were a few, a few occasions where I thought I found similar versions in Junior Jones and Nicholas Waters. While both had excellent careers, neither amounted to the same type of success Hearns had garnered. Finally, I found the true successor to the style and explosiveness of the Memphis-born legend. He hails from Japan and is nicknamed Monster. He's also my 27th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. And I go on to continue. After a solid amateur career in his native Japan, Inoue turned pro at the tender age of 19 in October 2012. In just his fourth pro fight, Inoue completely dominated future world light flyweight champion Ryochi Taguchi over 10 rounds to win the Japanese light flyweight title. Two fights later, on April 10, 2014, and four days shy of his 21st birthday, Inoue battered Adrian Hernandez into a six-round submission to win the WBC light flyweight title. It would begin a reign of terrorizing world-class fighter that now it's in its, in its well, right now it's in its, uh, this was 2014, in its eighth year. Eighth year, because this was 2014. Yeah, so we're now eight years into him terrorizing fighters uh, as a world champion or for, or, yeah, as a world champion or a world championship uh, level fighter. You know, he moved up to 115, completely skipping the 112-pound division to challenge softball technician and the reigning WBO junior bantamweight champion, the Argentinian Omar Narvaez, on December 30th, 2014. This fight was eerily reminiscent of Hearns against Pepino Cuevas. At 5'5", Inouye towered over the diminutive 5'2 Argentinian champion. Inouye, behind a piston-like jab, dropped Narvaez twice in round one and knocked him out at the end of the second round with a cannon-like left hook to the ribcage. This fight exemplified why Inouye is one of the greatest offensive fighters in boxing history. He has perfected every single punch in a boxer's arsenal. Besides his battering ram of a jab and debilitating hooks to the body, Inouye's right cross is also greater than 95% of all men who ever stepped into a boxing ring. At the age of 21 and only eight career fights, I felt at the time that Inouye was one of the 10 best active fighters at that time in the world. Unfortunately, the majority of boxing fans hadn't yet heard of this very special fighter from Japan. Over the next three years, Inoue successfully defended his 115-pound title seven times in overwhelming fashion, knocking out six of the contenders. Then, in the most important decision of his career, Inoue went up in class to 118 pounds. In his very first fight at 118, Inoue challenged British WBA Bantamweight champion Jamie McDonald for his title on May 25, 2018 in Tokyo. The now 25-year-old monster completely obliterated the British champion in less than two minutes. At this point in time, there was no doubt in my mind that despite having only 16 pro fights, Inoue was the greatest Japanese fighter who ever lived.
He would put an exclamation point to this distinction after the completion of the World Boxing Super Series Bantamweight Tournament. In his next two fights, both as both as part of this tournament, he know he knocked out one Carlos Payano in the first round and Emmanuel Rodriguez in the second round while adding Rodriguez's IBF title to his trophy case. This would result in Inouye facing legendary Filipino boxer Nonito Donaire to determine the winner of the 118-pound tournament. It was a night those who attended the fight in Satama, Japan, would never forget. Saitama, Japan, by the way. In a bantamweight version of Sugar Ray Leonard versus Thomas Hearns, both Inouye and Donaire put on an incredible display of power, speed, heart, skill, and intestinal fortitude. The 26-year-old Inouye was severely tested for the first time in his career. The 37-year-old Donaire showed why eight years prior, people were comparing him to Roy Jones Jr. Early in the second round, Inouye suffered a nasty cut around his right eye from a vicious Donaire left hook that, is, that impeded his air eyesight for the majority of the fight. Donaire ate several right crosses to land equally vicious rights of his own. In the fifth round, Inouye had Donaire in major trouble and almost put him away before the bell saved the Filipino great. Virtually dead even after an epic ninth round that saw Donaire badly hurt in Inouye, badly hurt Inouye in the tenth round that saw both fighters land bomb after bomb, it was the 11th round that clinched the fight for Inouye. Midway through the 11th, Inouye landed a left hook to Donaire's ribcage that sent the Filipino star running across the ring in pain. After going down from that same left hook, Donaire barely got up at the almost count of 10. Donaire then withstood a barrage of bombs before hurting Inouye with his own left hook to the chin to, to survive the penultimate round of the greatest fight in, in bantamweight history. Inouye wisely outboxed Donaire in the 12th and final round to secure the victory and the crown. Uh, the, uh, the crown of being the winner of the WBSS Bantamweight Tournament and winning Inouye's WBC Bantamweight Championship. WBA Championship, by the way, I'm sorry. So he was now the WBA and IBF champion. It was only fitting that the man who presented him with the, with, with the, with the trophy with the championship trophy was the fighter he supplanted as the greatest Japanese boxer of all time, fighting Harada. Like Leonard Hearns won, it was a fight where both fighters came out as winners. Despite winning the fight, Inouye suffered a broken orbital bone and nose. Donaire, despite losing, cemented his legacy as one of the greatest fighters to ever come from both Asia and the Philippines. Today, Inouye still reigns supreme as the real Bantamweight champion of the world at the still relatively young age of now 29. There is not a Bantamweight in the world today that has a shot in hell at beating him. Undefeated at 23-0 with 20 knockouts, Inouye has already proven in less than a decade as a pro boxer that not only is he the greatest Japanese fighter of all time, but also the 27th best fighter of the last 45 years. If we do another poll in five years... Inouye will undoubtedly, in my opinion, with his continued success, because right now I consider Inouye the greatest fighter on the planet that's active. If he continues on his, in, in his ascension in the next five years, Inouye will be battling for a top five 
of the last 50 years greatest fighter. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for, for uh, contributing great questions to the podcast. Once again, to answer, if you want me to answer any of your questions, hashtag AskRobSilva on Twitter. Until next time, be blessed and be a blessing.